to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. You know what, before I read the scripture um, this morning, I want to say a few words about where it's come from. And I also want to get my manuscript, so just give me one second. Okay, here we go. So, Zena Regis was one of our ministry fellows this past year. And Zena, I noticed, had the practice when she preached of selecting the scripture from this book that's called A Woman's Lectionary for the Whole Church. And this was new to me. Um, And when I was tasked with preaching this Sunday and wondering what text to use, I decided to give it a try. So first, just to say what a lectionary is. Um, A lectionary is a set of scripture lessons that are chosen for use in worship for each Sunday of the calendar year. And we in this congregation, when we use the lectionary, use what most mainline congregations used, and that is the revised common lectionary that was put together in 1992. So, Wilda Gaffney, this book, when we have a lectionary, why did she decide to create one of her own. She is a pastor in the African Methodist Zion Church. She's also a Hebrew biblical scholar at Bright Divinity in Texas. And to start with, behind her reasoning, is that the the fact that the Bible is a male-focused piece of scripture. Um, It is steeped in patriarchy. And she believes so are the lectionaries that have come out of them. She argues that the lectionaries that we use um, in those lectionaries, women are even less well represented than they are in the scriptures themselves. And this was her reasoning for creating a lectionary. And here's why this matters. um, This reality about our lectionary and the lack of representation of women in them, it matters because according to the Pew Research Center, the majority of Christians globally worship in congregations that use the lectionary. In the United States, it's estimated that 60% of all congregations are congregations that rely on the lectionary. And so for many Christians, What they know of the Bible comes from the lectionary readings on Sunday mornings. And so we are hearing through the lectionary very little about the already underrepresented women in Scripture. So she has this lectionary. She built a lectionary around women's stories and also around using wonderful creative imagery for God that is inclusive. 
and also for using um, feminine pronouns or female pronouns um, in the scriptures as well. So her lectionary, just like the Revised Common Lectionary, offers a set of passages for each Sunday, and the scripture for this morning is the scripture that she offers for this day from the Old Testament. So let us hear now the word of God. The Philistines deployed against Israel, and the battle was lost, and Israel was struck down by the Philistines. And they killed on the field of battle that day 4,000 men. Now it happened as the Ark of the Covenant of the fire of Sinai came into the camp, all Israel created, shouted greatly, and the earth itself echoed the shout. And when the Philistines heard the sound of the great shout, they said, what is this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they learned that the ark of the Ancient of Days had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, Gods have come into the camp, and woe to us! Never has there been such a thing. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with every kind of plague in the wilderness. Strengthen yourselves and be men, O Philistines, lest you become enslaved to the Hebrews as they were enslaved to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and each fled to their tent. Now there was a very great slaughter, and there fell from Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Then the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead. And she squatted and she gave birth, for her labor pains came on and overwhelmed her. Then, at the moment of her death, the women standing with her said to her, Fear not, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or incline her heart. She named the child Ai Kabad, meaning, Woe, the glory of God has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because her father-in-law and husband were dead. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been taken. Holy wisdom, holy word, thanks be to God. So, wow. I feel like we all just needed to take a deep breath. 
So the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, this passage was from 1st Samuel, tell of a time of radical change for the people of Israel as they moved from being a band of marginalized tribes to becoming a monarchy, a centralized monarchy, first under King Saul and then King David. And this movement towards centralization of political power and consolidation of land led to even further conflict with the Philistines. These were the people who were in the land of Canaan when the Israelites first arrived. And so in this passage, the battles, these particular battles took place at Shiloh, and they're known as the Battle of Shiloh. This was a very sacred assembly site for the Israelites. So the battle takes place, the first battle, and the Israelites lose and they return to camp. And the elders decide that the problem was the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, as Gaffney calls it, was not with them. So they determined that they must go back into battle and this time bring the Ark with them. Now the Ark of the Covenant, here's a, one artist imagining of it here, was the holiest of objects for the people of Israel. And it represented to them God's power in their midst. It was the most sacred relic that they had. In the New Testament, it's talked about the tablets of Moses were kept in this ark. They thought of it as the footstool of the throne of God and really felt wherever the ark went, God was there. So they bring this ark into the camp of the Israelites and they erupt in shouts and cheers and are feeling emboldened for the battle to come. And the Philistines hear about this and they recoil with fear. But to everyone's shock, the shock of both sides, Israel is defeated again. And the greatest disaster, the greatest disaster of all, is that the ark is captured by the Philistines. And this had never happened before. It was unimaginable to them, and it was catastrophic to think of losing the ark. So these are the circumstances in which we meet this unnamed woman in the text. Like many women in scripture, she is known by the men that she is affiliated with. She's the pregnant daughter of the priest Eli. Eli was the priest who met Hannah in the temple when she came to pray in her barrenness. So she's Eli's pregnant daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas. Eli's son. And when she learns that both Eli and Phineas are dead and the ark is lost, her anguish is so overwhelming that her body joins in her travail and she goes into labor. And then she dies moments after her child is born. Now, Wilda Gaffney the lectionary creator 
states very clearly in the opening of the lectionary that she believes that it is possible for the church, for you to hear the good news through these stories of marginalized women. But to jump straight to the moral of the story, so to speak, feels like perpetuating patriarchy's pattern of making women incidental in the text. So before we wrestle a blessing from this text, as Gaffney invites us to do, before we do that, I want to begin by just regarding with you the experience of this woman. I want to give some contours, some form, and some flesh to this woman of Shiloh and the anguish and the death that she experiences. And so to do this, we're going to look at some contemporary women whose experiences in some way mirror hers. In 1995, I was serving a congregation in Rochester, New York, and my husband Trace was a PhD student at Syracuse University. That year, a sculpture exhibit called Dark Elegy by an artist named Susan Lowenstein, who you see on the slide, this exhibit opened on campus. Seven years earlier, on December 21st, 1988, while flying at 31,000 feet, a terrorist bomb exploded, destroying Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. The flight was filled with holiday travelers, many on their way home from London to, to New York and all 259 passengers were killed, as were, and passengers and crew, along with 11 people on the ground. 35 students of Syracuse University who were returning home for the holidays after a semester abroad were on that flight. And one of them was Susan Lowenstein's son, Alexander. Almost immediately, Susan Lowenstein began to sculpt large figures expressing her grief, her pain, and her rage. When other women who had lost loved ones on Flight 103 heard of this, many expressed a desire to contribute to the project. And here's how Susan Lowenstein described the process of creating these figures. One by one, a woman would come into my studio, step on a posing platform, close her eyes, and go back to December 21st, to that horrible moment when they learned their loved one had died. They allowed their bodies to fall into the position that it took upon hearing that most devastating news. Some scream, some beg, some weep, some pray, some curl into a ball, while other ra others raise their fists in anger or despair. 
This is the moment I freeze in time. This is the pose I shape in my sculpture. She goes on to say that she asked each woman to give a small memento of their loved one, which she then took and placed in the sculpture, generally in the heart area. She said sometimes it was a shoelace or a sock or an earring or a photo or a poem, whatever they wanted. And each figure contains that item and is inscribed with the name of the woman and the name of the person she has lost. In all, 76 mothers, wives, sisters, daughters, grandmothers came forward. Susan Lowenstein's hope is that dark elegy would be a reminder showing what hate can do to both people and to countries, to nations. She says it should be a reminder that life is fragile and that we can lose what is most precious to us so easily. So can we call this unnamed woman for a moment, Susan? Can we honor her loss, her anguish? Can we feel it? And can we be with all the women and men, named and unnamed, who are left to bear the consequences of violent conflict, spilling out of patriarchy's playbook of domination and conquest and scarcity? So for the narrator of 1 Samuel, the greatest tragedy in the passage is the loss of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. The birth of the child is overshadowed by this, as is the woman's death in childbirth. But again, together, in this moment, can we allow that the greatest tragedy is her death? her death in childbirth. How frequently uh, women died in childbirth in the ancient Near East is unknown to us, but it was surely very high. Childbirth was a hazardous event for both women and children, for mother and child. In the U.S. today, it is still one of the more dangerous things a woman can do. It is still one of the more dangerous things a woman can do. I found two sets of data, one saying that for women between the ages of 20 and 34, it's the sixth leading cause of death, one saying it's the seventh. And the numbers aren't good even as we pull and tease this apart and look into it more. Maternal rates, death rates, have been increasing in the United States since 2000. They're going up. US, the United States ranks 11th, has the worst, sorry, it has the worst maternal death rate among the 11th most developed nations. 
Ours is the worst maternal death rate among developed nations. So according to the CDC, women in Georgia, particularly, are twice as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than those in other parts of the country. Our maternal death rate in Georgia is twice as high as the rest of the country. In Georgia, black mothers are two times more likely to die than white mothers in this state. And women who live in Georgia's rural areas are also disproportionately affected. 150 of Georgia's counties, or half of 150, half of Georgia's 150 counties have no OBGYN. Half of the counties in Georgia have no OBGYN. And these imbalances have existed for decades and continue to grow. So this prompted, at this most recent legislative season, the passage of SB 388. It was a direct response to this reality. And this bill increases postpartum co coverage under Medicaid from six months to one year. And that's a good step. But what about expanding Medicaid in Georgia so more women could access this? What about making sure that all the women who are eligible for Medicaid get enrolled in Medicaid? And what about the systemic racism in our system? And then, of course, wrapped around all of this is the fall of Roe v. Wade. What will this do to those women? Shalon Irving, Dr. Shalon Irving, was an epidemiologist with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and she was a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, and she dedicated her life to understanding how structural racism and trauma and violence influence health disparities over a lifetime. That was her call. How racism, structural racism, influences health disparities. Shalon's friends and close colleagues characterized her as the perfect embodiment of a black magic girl. She was a spiritually powerful and passionate queen, they say, who exuded brilliance in every one of her endeavors. She always showed up for people. She showed up for her friends, her colleagues. She dedicated her life to showing up for those who were in need. At times, she was quiet and pensive, they say, but she was always loving. A website set up in her honor says that though Shalon had it all, she had a top-notch education, she had professional success, a strong insurance plan and support network, she was at high risk for life-threatening issues related to pregnancy and childbirth just for being a black woman in the state of Georgia.
And at 36 years of age, three weeks after giving birth, she died of complications of high blood pressure. This was after two postnatal visits, one in which her blood pressure was dangerously high, so high that the College of American Obstetrics and Gynecologists recommend hospitalization when a woman's blood pressure is that high after birth. At another visit, she was concerned about severe swelling and was told to relax. She just had a baby. So let's call the woman in the text Shalon. Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, once at Columbia Seminary, notes that there is no theological comment in this passage until the woman comes into the narrative. And here's what he says. He says, now the only interpretive comment is out of the mouth of this unnamed, most discerning woman. And she declares that God is absent. What this means for Israel is that the ark no longer guarantees Israel's salvation in situations of crisis. And Israel has no categories for understanding this new situation. There are no words to explain what has happened, to explain this reality. And the unnamed woman does the only thing that can be done in the face of such catastrophe. She laments. Katie Cannon was the first black woman ordained in our denomination. She was ordained in Shelby, North Carolina in 1974. And she was a groundbreaking theologian and Ephesus ethicist who helped to elevate the experience of black women in church life and theological reflection. She is known for what is now called womanist theology. Katie Cannon said these words and was known for them throughout her career. We must do the work our soul must have. We must do the work our soul must have. In one essay, reflecting on what these words meant to her, she says this means, these words mean to her that we must do the robust spiritual work required to fortify us for the struggle of justice. We must do the work of the soul required to equip us for social witness. And the story of the woman of Shiloh evokes the soul work that Katie Cannon is calling for. It's the work our souls must do when God does not protect those we love or otherwise meet our expectations. It's the work our souls must do when our faith is shaken to the core when our strategies for shoring ourselves up and our understanding of who we are 
no longer hold up to the reality around us. It's the work our souls must do when we cannot forgive ourselves or others or the world or God. Katie Cannon cautions us. She's saying this to us, that as justice-loving and justice-seeking people, if we are not able to abide in the hard places of fear or doubt or devastation, we risk having a fragile faith that cannot hold up to the weight of the world. Or we risk being swallowed up by hollow moral outrage. Neither of these, she says, neither of these will sustain the ministry of liberation. We must do the work our souls must have. Abiding with the lament together also binds us to one another. Could you feel your heart lean towards Susan Lowenstein? Could you feel your heart pour out to Sharon Irving? And now the woman at Shiloh? Can you feel the space, the energy we share now? This work reminds us of our relatedness and binds us together. So when we allow the grit and the grime of life to be part of the drama of faith, to be part of who we are, Katie Cannon proclaims that it is possible for a stronger and more durable faith to emerge. When we do this work, a stronger, more durable faith will emerge. And it's a faith that's not contingent upon our expectations or a particular outcome. It's a faith that falls into the arms of a love that will not let us go. Much of the time, being caught by this love does not feel like the Marvel superhero rescue we would hope for. For one prophet, being caught by this love sounded like a still, small voice. And for another prophet, it was a shoot springing up from a stump. For the contemporary mystic of the civil rights movement, Howard Thurman, it was being held by a thread. This holy presence of love can feel delicate and subtle and fleeting because it will never be anything that we can contain or conjure or ultimately comprehend. But here's what it is. It is what equips us to be bearers of the light, 
as we stand in that moment between creation's groaning in birth pain and the goodness of, and mercy that are yet to be born. Thanks be to God.